Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Sailors say, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good wife you would be. But my wife, my lover, my lady, is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. We'd like to thank Looking Glass for dedicating that one hit to your favorite raw-boned and wicked good podcast. Welcome to Episode 198 of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam. I'm your producer, Lou Kippelman, and this is what you get when your producer forgets to contact your host to cut an intro for the episode. Anyway, enough of my yakking. Let's boogie and get to part two of John and his guest, Brent Nicholas, as they continue their discussion of WrestleMania three. We have an intermission. Well, I remember those. And then we have the Hart Foundation and Danny Davis against the British Bulldogs and Tito Santana. And I remember watching WWF wrestling in late 86, early 87. When Danny Davis first started doing heel stuff as a ref, he starts, you know, oh, Danny Davis made a mistake. Danny Davis made a flagrant mistake. Danny Davis is a bad guy who's intentionally screwing the baby faces. And I was like, you know, wow, I, I, as far as I know, I, I know other promotions had done it in the past, but I was unaware in 1986 that, you know, this had happened. I'm like, wow, this, you know, this WWF stuff, they'll do anything. Yeah, it was fresh. I didn't have the reference for the the heel refs that have been done in the past. I know from reading Bret Hart's book, they'd done it in Stampede, for example. I've always wondered if how long they'd had it planned and if him being the ref for the Santana Savage thing was just a happy coincidence or if that was something they planted the seed in. I, I really don't know, but it, if it was a happy coincidence, it sure worked out well. The only issue, this is the one match on the card that I take a little bit of issue with the booking. And it's because there was no follow-up. It would be fine if, you know, they're like, oh, Davis got beat up, he got beat up, got beat up, but oh, that guy, he managed to get the win in the end. Oh, I hate him. But they didn't follow up. Not even a house show circuit with him getting his just desserts. You know, they did one match at Madison Square Garden, which aired on the network, the Madison Square Garden network, I assume, um, where the Bulldogs teamed with the mentioned earlier Billy Jack Haynes in a somewhat prominent role against the Hart Foundation and Davis, and they won. But that's it. He was, they gave him this big, huge angle at WrestleMania, let him win when everybody was dying to see him lose, even though he got beat up a lot. And then they had him going around the horn with Coco Beware. And they just never paid it off. And he just kind of fizzled out. And, you know, we all know that led to Sam Houston. That was just awful. So I, I just don't know why they didn't go ahead and, and make him lose at WrestleMania three. If they weren't going to go stronger with him on the house show circuit, at least a Saturday night's main event where he lost to Santana or something. You're right. They, they seemed to drop this angle really quickly after this match. And you're correct. I mean, if they're going to do that, why not just have him get his comeuppance at WrestleMania, get knocked out by Tito Santana or, you know, have the Bulldogs really work him over. And they didn't do that. They just kind of dropped the angle. And, and two years later, he's back to being a ref with no explanation. And then, you know, he did actually, they did at one point do a, um, 
commentary where they said that he was back as a rep on a probationary basis and that they would be watching him close. Now you see, I I actually read his Wikipedia uh, biography, believe it or not. And it said that in there, I, I can miss things. I just don't remember that happening. But one thing I did learn from, from reading that is that he had a, he has a book out. And no offense to Danny Davis, none whatsoever. But I remember, you know, back when there were no wrestling books out there, there was the Thez book and the Dynamite Kid book and the Wrestling Bear guy. And that's about it. And I literally, that's about it. And then Mick Foley comes up with the idea to write a book. And the book does, does so spectacularly that, like, when it came out, I couldn't get a copy of it. They didn't, you know, they figured it wasn't going to be the number one uh, bestseller book. And now talk about everyone having a book. Danny Davis has a book. Bobby Blaze has a book. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, well, Bobby Blaze was Smoky Mountain champion. I'm like, oh, Bobby Blaze has a book. Nothing against Bobby Blaze but, and, or Danny Davis. I mean, Danny Davis got national exposure. But, I mean, my God, everyone has a book. Yeah, yeah. It's that's absolutely the case. You know, he also just in looking up because I wanted to see if they ever did blow off this feud because, you know, I took issue with the booking. He also had a house show run with George the Animal Steel. I can only imagine how awful those matches were. Yeah, they tried to train Danny Davis as being Mr. X. He was Mr. X uh, under a hood for about a year before they turned him into the heel ref. So he would ref some matches and they put the the, uh, Dr. X or Mr. X costume on and that you know that's how he trained but anyway one thing i i remembered before this show was dynamite kid was getting from place to place in a wheelchair and he's out there trying to wrestle i mean there are a lot of bad dynamite kid stories out there but i mean this guy this guy had stones man i've i've actually heard that when he went out you know the the story is that davy boy had him ride on his shoulders out when they were going to drop the belts of the Hart Foundation. He got beat up right before the match started. And so Davy Boy got double teamed by the Hart Foundation while Danny Davis laughed and let him do it. I've heard that when Dynamite Kid got to the back, that the there were other wrestlers gave him a standing ovation for even doing what he did to get out there and drop those belts. So for all his faults, he he did. He he really put himself out there for those matches where he just had to be there. But there were a lot of other matches where they were subbing guys in for him all the time. Junkyard Dog, Pedro Morales, whatever. The joke going around was, I have heard that story too, that the wrestlers gave him a standing ovation and Vince McMahon gave him $25. (laughs) That wouldn't surprise me, but I know that part. (laughs) Nope. I, I mean, that's what you got for a TV taping and Vince wasn't going to give him anything extra for 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 his efforts. Now we have Butch Reed against Coco Ware. We talked a little bit about it where Reed and Ware had a confrontation on TV. When Coco Ware came to the WWF in 1986, I mean, he really hadn't gotten a big push anywhere else. So I didn't see him as a big star. He was kind of a mid-card guy in Memphis, and then he was kind of a mid-card guy in Mid-South. And I'm like, okay, he's going to be an undercard guy in the WWF. But as talented and charismatic as he was, 
he never got out of the mid card. And this is kind of Vince McMahon showing us that, hey, he's a mid carder against a real star like Butch Reed. Yeah, Coco Beware, again, I kind of looked up some matches and stuff. He actually spent his first three months, which he started in the fall of 86, undefeated. But the people he was beating were all Iron Mike Sharp, Steve Lombardi. There were no big wins. And then as 87 rolled around, he started becoming what he ended up being the rest of his career in WWF, which is he was losing to Hercules. He was losing to Butch Reed. He he just wasn't that guy that was going to... He was S.D. Jones, basically. Um, he That's, was, yeah. He was going to win those, those preliminary opening the show matches against other guys who lost most of the time. But when it came time to wrestle anybody with a name, he was going to lose. And that's what the Butch Reed match was. I was actually kind of surprised we didn't win more decisively, but that's more a WWF booking thing at the time where almost any heel, even somebody who looked like Butch Reed just wasn't going to win clean. You had to look more like King Kong Bundy to get those clean, decisive victories. Yeah, I, I excuse me. I agree with you. Um, and Butch Reed, you know, I talked, I have talked 35 years about how much Hacksaw Jim Duggan declined as soon as he went to the WWF. I mean, he was good in Mid-South Wrestling, and he gets here, and he immediately stinks, not only in the ring, but on the microphone. I mean, he just threw it all away. Butch Reed, to a lesser extent, did exactly the same thing. He just, you know, he went from being really good in Mid-South. I mean, I've talked about Maybe they should have made Butch Reed the NWA champion in 1985. And here he is. and He's just not good anymore. No. And that's why I've never bought the rumors that he was going to get the Intercontinental belt for, for two reasons. One, he was not put over strong here. His general run in WWF was not a strong push at, you know, that whole of 87 in January, February as well. And then the results of the match that came after this with the honky tonk man. That's why I think, yeah, maybe they weren't going to take the belt off a steamboat so quickly, but then he wanted to spend time with family. But I think the plan was always to go the honky tonk man. I don't think any rumors about it being Butch Reed, but he no showed a show or whatever is one of those internet legends. Not even close. I don't, I don't see Reed even being in the conversation, to be honest. What I've heard over the years is that Vince McMahon was in love with the natural character and he was in love with the honky-tonk man character and he just went with the honky-tonk man character. I mean, I also do not believe the rumor that Butch Reed was going to win the Intercontinental Championship, but oh no, he no-showed, but they kept pushing him anyway. I, I just don't believe it. Yeah, and and, and, the, and we haven't got this match. It's the next one. We'll segue into it, but... The surprise, I think everybody was surprised a honky-tonk man beat Jake. To me, that was just a red flag that this guy's going somewhere. Yeah. Um. I mean, here's what I think, okay? As far as the Intercontinental Championship goes, uh, Ricky Steamboat says that Vince took it off of him because he wanted to take some time off because he was having a newborn. Uh, the internet says Butch Reed was going to win it, but he no-showed. I don't believe either one of those. I don't think Steamboat is lying. Here's what happened. This is my theory. Vince McMahon loved the honky-tonk man. He pushed him hard as a baby face before the fans threw him back at Vince like nothing I've ever seen before. I've talked about this before. There's a match on primetime wrestling 
where it's a honky-tonk man against the uh, previously mentioned Mr. X, and the fans boo everything the honky-tonk man does. And Vince being Vince is like, okay, you, you won't, you're going to boo him as a baby face? Well, boo him as a heel. And he was just that, that determined to get the, the character he liked so much over. Vince said, you know what? I'm going to put the Intercontinental Championship on him. And he did it. Yeah, and, and that makes sense because, again, having Honky Tonk Man win in the way he did against Jake Roberts was exactly what you were going to see for the next year with Honky Tonk Man as an Intercontinental Champion. Yeah, I mean, he main evented Madison Square Garden. He main evented Boston Garden, etc. I'll tell you one thing I want to talk about in this match. And I, I keep pounding on this on this podcast. Jesse Ventura keeps referring to Coco Ware as buckwheat. And I want everyone to know that 1987, we're all sitting there going, come on, Jesse, knock that off. Yeah. The there were things going on in wrestling that, that we accepted that in general society were not acceptable, even at that time period. Yeah, no, I, I just, you know, it's, uh, for whatever reason, it's important for me to tell younger viewers that, you know, no, we were not amused by that. It, it was just a wrestling thing that they were kind of, a, kind of dis- disconnected from. Yeah. The, I, I, it just kept going though. I mean, it just, as a fan, sometimes I just cringed. There was some stuff between Luger and Harley Race and Ron Simmons a few years later in WCW that made me feel dirty. <laughs> it was bad. <Yep. laughs> it was bad. You know, it's just not a coincidence that when Teddy Long and uh, was managing Doom against Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, that it was Teddy Long. You know, no other manager had to be a chauffeur but, Tony, but Teddy Long. Yeah, wrestling wrestling hasn't had a kind history to. Uh, I'm black uh, wrestlers in particular, Hispanics to a lesser degree. Yeah. And like I said, we were all like, oh, come on, man. Don't don't do that. It's not like, oh, this is great. Teddy Long's got to be a chauffeur. It was like, no, put that away. Yeah. Which makes you wonder why they did it. I, I don't know. I'm well with some of the folks. We we know that there was a uh, nasty reason they did it, but. You know, like the bookers and stuff, you you think they would know better from an economic standpoint of just why do this? You're not making any extra money going down this route. Yep. Some of those bookers were just a little bit out of touch. Next up, the Intercontinental Championship match between Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat. One thing I noticed for the first time watching this again this week, they have Ricky Steamboat in the pre-match interview, which was terrible. Wearing some kind of eye makeup that is trying to make him look more Asian. I don't understand, but it was clearly there. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't understand a lot of things that they were were doing with Steamboat. Um, it almost seemed like they were trying to make him dorkier at times, and he didn't need help with that. Yeah. I mean, we didn't get to NWA 1989 level, but you're right, they seem to go out of their way to make sure that Ricky looked as as corny as can be. What I did not like the Miss Elizabeth slash George Steele storyline coming into this. Like I hated it in 1987. Now I look at it and I'm like, that really is kind of a brilliant sideshow in this feud. Yeah. 13 year old me loved George the Animal Steel. 
He was a character that just appealed to kids. And I I just love the whole run of it. You you just thought he was he was this sweet guy who who Elizabeth should just dump a Randy Savage for and it, it it just worked well. And it was something that they ran with for almost two years. It was a long storyline that they kind of had in the background. Sometimes it got pushed more prominent. And so then when this came about, they were able to inject him into it in the in the perfect way. If you're not a believer like some who think that Steamboat should have won clean and steel being involved was a you know a bad thing. I know there are some people who say that. I didn't have a problem with it. No, I had no problem with the finish of this match whatsoever. Getting a little bit off the WrestleMania 3 rail, I was thinking, okay, what are were the best matches of the 80s, right? And I think this was the best match of the entire decade, only including uh, the West, not including Mexico or Japan, that did not involve Ric Flair. And I have it ranked as number 11 in the 80s, which tells you a lot about how good Ric Flair was during that decade. Yeah, this was my favorite WWF match for ever and ever. It is a just a textbook of how to put on a masterpiece in a shorter amount of time. Nowadays, and again, I'm I'm not saying it's bad because I quite enjoy a lot of the the modern wrestling, but it takes them 30 minutes to tell the kind of stories they're looking to tell. These guys in 13 minutes just blew through this and put on something that WWF fans just really hadn't seen. You know, at least those of us who were new to the company, we were blown away. And I don't think there's anything else I can think of that compared in WWF, even compared, not better, until you started getting into the Kurt Hennig, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels solo years where they started putting on some more work rate oriented matches. Yeah. I think this match was, was even better than those matches. Like I remember the 1991 Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect match and thinking, you know, okay, that was a great match, but I still didn't think it was better than, I didn't think it was better than Savage Steamboat. This match blew everything away. And Ric Flair in his book says like, Oh no, that wasn't a good match. They didn't book it on the fly. It's like, who cares? Rick Flair, who I love his on-screen stuff, I just wish the man would shut up and never be heard from again. <laughs> I just, well, I mean, I the book so... is like twenty years old. Oh no, I know, I, I know, and he he was in full WWF kiss ass mode at that point. Yes, he was. I mean, any he he wanted to show Triple H and Vince McMahon that he was the ultimate team guy, and anybody who was on the outs with WWF, he was gonna bash. And that meant taking shots at Bret Hart. That meant taking shots at Mick Foley, who, you know, goes in and out with WWF like every six months. Um, But yeah, he was going, he was going down that road. I've never understood that philosophy. I don't care if you're Randy Savage, DDP, any of these guys who have a reputation as wanting to plan everything out. If it works on screen, me as a viewer, I don't care. It may take somebody in the back but that's that's not my problem. No, you you hit the nail on the head. It's like if if the match is a really good match, it doesn't matter how you got there. So I I thought that was crazy. This was a match that I knew Ricky Steamboat was going to win. I didn't have any direct knowledge. No one told me. 
But to me, there was just no other way. Either Steamboat was winning that title or he was losing all face. Yeah, and that's and there's nothing wrong with that. If if, if a story makes logical sense and the fans are going to have that cathartic release of of joy that their 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 hero got his revenge, then predictability is not a bad thing. No, definitely not. And I hate to use the cliche that Randy Savage didn't need the Intercontinental Championship, but at this point he didn't need it, and you know Honky Tonk Man kind of did. Honky Tonk Man was was made by the Intercontinental title. I mean, that's really what what his whole character was about. And as soon as he lost it, he was of almost no use to the WWF. You know, he had that tag team with Greg Valentine, but that was you could have put any two guys at that level. It wasn't anybody that was working any top level matches or anything. And he knew it, which is why he held on to the Intercontinental like title like Grim Death and fought Vince on giving it up. Yeah, I, I mean, I am lucky enough to have seen uh, Honky Tonk Man and Greg Valentine, one of the worst tag teams ever, against the Bushwhackers live. When I say lucky, I don't really mean lucky, but at least I could say it. That sounds painful. It, it was. It was every bit as good as you would think it would be. Next up, we have Honky Tonk Man. Hey, there's his name again, against Jake the Snake Roberts. One thing I can add culturally here is Alice Cooper was in Jake the Snake Roberts' corner. Alice Cooper was such a joke by 1987. I mean, I get that he's from Detroit, and he probably came at a reasonable price tag, and he can fight with Jimmy Hart after the match, but there was nothing less cool than Alice Cooper in 1987. No, he, he was not cool. I only had a vague knowledge of him, too. You know, being the age that I was and not being a, a big metal fan at the time, I was more into the, the top 40, the new wave, that kind of thing. It was only as I got a little older that I started branching out into some harder edge stuff. Not that he was terribly harder edged, but you know what I mean? Um, he tried to be. Yeah. And I think it's funny now that all he does is golf in Arizona. As I understand that the this guy who was supposedly the enemy of parents everywhere and now he just hangs out in golf clothes and golf sun courses <laughs> well good for him if he has the cash to do that but i mean even the the heavy metal people in 1987 saw alice cooper as a poser i mean he tried doing new wave in 1980 and he actually had a pretty good album but you know he talked about a guy who just you know goes wherever the wind blow is blowing him and like i said no one was less cool in 1987 this was a huge upset. Not one person I watched this event with thought that Honky Tonk Man was going to going to beat Jake Roberts. Of course, we had no idea that Vince McMahon was in love with the Honky Tonk Man character. I mean, I thought this was going to be their way of just getting rid of this guy or maybe pushing him to the bottom of the card, but no, he beats Jake Roberts reasonably cleanly and would soon go on to win the Intercontinental Championship, which I couldn't believe at the time. And, you know, once again, main eventing, Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, etc. Well, not not being able to believe he was Intercontinental Champion was kind of the gimmick. I mean, that was that was the whole thing behind it is I can't believe this guy's champion. He's going to lose next time. There's no way he's going to win. And he just kept winning for, what, 454 days, I think it was, or something. He, what I thought was funny about this and why 
as a kid, I was sure Jake was going to win is because you had the same thing going on as a steamboat thing. Steamboat gets his throat smushed by the, the ring bell. Jake Snake takes the guitar shot to the head. Booking 101, even for a 13-year-old, says, Jake wins. Yeah, and I, I like I said, I was 21, and I had no idea that they were they had big plans for this honky tonk band guy that you know everyone had just rejected. But ultimately, Vince gets to this decide, and what they did was pretty good. They had Alice Cooper and Jimmy Hart fighting after the match. The fans got into it, but right for me, my experience was at the time that this event right now at this moment is getting a little bit long. We want to get to the main event, and we've got one more match to go. The Killer Bees against Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov, which really was just a backdrop for Hacksaw Jim Duggan's antics. Uh, Yeah, this match. um, (laughs) I was 13. I was getting a little more politically aware, and Duggan drove me up the wall. Him coming out and telling Volkoff he couldn't sing the national anthem because this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. I was just like, how dumb is this guy? And he he came across the entire time he was in WWF to me as somebody who was mentally challenged. I mean, just I did not get that character at all. And I'm sure that has to be doing with growing up with liberal parents in Sacramento and and the whole bit and not being you know, growing up where USA, 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 but I just did not get the Hacksaw Duggan character in WWF, and it did nothing for me. There has been, or there was speculation in 1987, I mean, there was talk that, look, you know, Hulk Hogan, when when Hulkamania dries up, maybe Hacksaw Jim Duggan would be the next best thing. I mean, that's how highly regarded he was in Mid-South, and there's always been a theory out there that, okay, we're going to make sure that Hacksaw Jim Duggan does that, that the wrong guy does not get too over. And I mean, really, it was almost like Duggan what Duggan was positioned to to not reach a certain level of of, you know, stardom. I mean, here's a guy like I said, he there was there was talk that this could be the guy to replace Hogan at some point. And he was very different than the Mid-South. Jim Duggan. Jim Duggan in Mid-South was a great interview. He was excellent in the ring when he wanted to be. Not always, but he was a great brawler. And, I mean, no one fell faster than Jim Duggan as soon as he went to the WWF. And like you said, it's you know it's a weird character. Hey, this is the, the land of the free, and you're not going to sing a song I don't like. Yeah, I mean, and I've watched in the years since. I've gone back, and I've seen him in Mid-South, and he's he's fantastic. And I didn't even hate him in WCW when he was older and they were just having to go out there to pop the crowd. And now he was harmless. But he and Ultimate Warrior were those two guys that just as I got older in my teens, just grated on me on what I didn't want to see in wrestling anymore. Yeah, Duggan was pretty bad. And yet he main evented, uh, you know, big arenas in 1988 against Andre the Giant, Boston Garden, the uh Uniondale was at the Long Island Civic Center, etc. But yeah, this I mean the the this match was kind of like the feeling in the room was, okay, can we please get this over with and get to Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant? Yeah, I think it was a bit of a cool down. Maybe, yeah. You know, that's the other thing I'll say about it is something I noticed on the card is 
there were only four faces that won on the entire card. Now, there were some heels that got their, you know, beatdowns after their matches. Like in this case, you had Duggan hitting Iron Sheik with a two by four, but it cost the Killer Bees the winner's share of the purse. But the only faces that won, Hogan, Piper, Steamboat. And then the Can-Am Connection. So it's I, I I was kind of thinking about this when I looked at it because I was I was looking along the card seeing the you know, the the so-called cool down matches in between and I said I wonder if having so many of the heels win was a decided choice by Vince to make those three big matches into a lesser stint Can Am connection as an opener to hype the crowd to make those three big matches a bigger deal when the faces won. That is excellent analysis because I did not even realize that and you're right that makes the Hogan win, the Steamboat win, and the, who am I forgetting? Piper. And the Piper win, of course. How, you know, those were the, the big ones. I mean, the title change with Steamboat, Piper's retiring, and Hogan's beating Andre. So, wow, good analysis, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, I was just, I was just looking at that cooldown thing, and I was like, man, there's a lot of heels winning. <laughs> yeah. All right, before the Hulk Hogan-Andre the Giant match, they did what I thought was a brilliant bit of booking. They had a special belt made for Andre the Giant because the regular belt wasn't going to fit Andre. So they had a special belt made for him. And even among the people I was watching the show with, they were kind of not sure but confident that Andre was winning the title because why else would they have the belt made? You know why I thought Andre might win? The Battle Royal they had on Saturday night main event, they had him headbutt Leaping Lanny Poffo. And he did one of those rare blade jobs we talked about earlier. And matter of fact, him and Billy Jack Haynes were about the only two I can remember off the top of my head in 87. And it just made Andre look like a monster. I mean, he he headbutted this guy, duck, cracked. And to Poffo's credit, he he did a pretty good blade job. And I just was thinking as a kid yeah hogan's had to belt a long time andre's undefeated i i i think they might they might have andre win you know and but they they went with hogan which you know for obvious reasons (laughs) brent i i could be wrong here but if i recall correctly poffo didn't do a blade job that was an accident was it really okay i i i I figured he bladed bull man that makes it even cooler (laughs) (laughs) yeah I could be wrong on that one, but if I recall correctly, I remember hearing that that was an accident that Andre just got a little too stiff with Lanny and he busted him open for real. Um, Hulk Hogan did an interview before this match and he did the typical what you're going to do, brother interview. And I if I were booking this, I would have made a one time exception here. I would have had Hulk Hogan come out and talk in a normal voice and say, you know what, even I have a little bit of butterflies. I'm going to be out there in front of 93,000 people. I'm going to be wrestling Andre the Giant. He's undefeated. I'm confident I can beat him, but I'm feeling the butterflies. Instead, he just did the same interview he'd been doing for three years. Yeah, and I think think that's a good idea, and I think... You know, that's a good point on why I preferred the 84 Hogan is a little bit more of that human aspect. And from here, I think that only got worse and worse as he continued on, as he moved towards the big match with the Warrior WrestleMania six, the promos got more and more insane. 
Yeah, all, he started treating like Hulkamania like it was a cult or something. It was pretty crazy. And then, of course, once he got to WCW and he had all that creative control, more than just you know having Vince McMahon's ear and Vince liking to make money, he completely forgot everything that got Hogan over in the first place because he wouldn't show any vulnerability anymore, which the whole key to Hogan in these matches was you had to have doubt. You had to see him get crushed by Bundy. You had to see him get handcuffed by the boss man and beat with a nightstick. You had to see all those things, and then he got WCW, and he did none of them. He just steamrolled through everybody. So I think I think your idea is is really is really good. I think it would have helped uh, show a little human part of Hogan again, and then he needed that now and then, and they kind of started to not do that at all. Well, I mean, I think part of the problem with Hogan in WCW was. I mean, to a lot of the fans in WCW, he didn't belong there. He was the invader from outside. And really, by the time he got there, he was kind of a, a an 80s nostalgia act. I mean, he made it work eventually by turning heel, but I think that was more it than anything. That, that was part of it. I, I don't think his physique helped. I mean, far be it for me to tell somebody they should be on steroids, but when you've seen somebody look a certain way for a number of years and all of a sudden they are 60 pounds lighter, you know, it, it, it's kind of jarring. But I do think it would have helped if he would have allowed himself to get power bombed by Vader and, you know, not gotten up or if he would have, you know, allowed Flair to trick him and the horseman to help beat him down and, you know, that that kind of stuff that he just wasn't letting happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, someone asked a question for our upcoming 200th episode about, you know, Hogan using WCW as his personal pl playground, even more so than he did in the WWF. But I watched this match, like I said, with about 20 people. I mean, literally, we had people standing because there was nowhere else to sit. We had people sitting on the floor. Not one person saw anything wrong with this match. I mean, I, I know it gets, you know, nailed in the newsletters as being, you know, not good. And if you watched it in a vacuum, like if there were no fans, there was no noise, and these two were just doing what they were doing, yes, it's awful. But all of those things were there, and they kept it going for 10 minutes. They gave the people what they wanted, which was Hulk Hogan going over clean. I mean, it it was the WWF delivering right here. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing about it is I, at the time, thought it was great. But I've often thought it was funny because there's a mask that compares perfectly to it, which is WrestleMania 18, Rock and Hogan. Same kind of thing. It's all about atmosphere. But because I was so in a negative Hogan place at that point, I was not buying what they were selling and i was cursing out the canadian fans like what are you doing here why are you cheering this guy you're you know cheer the rock he he, he performs for you and so that match has never worked for me i'm much more to the dave Meltzer. that was a terrible match kind of thing whereas with wrestlemania 3 i'm like a lot of people were with hogan and rock where it's just the crowd going crazy and the stare down and i was just so into the product at that point that you know, it was it was just giving me chills to watch in this confrontation, and you just never thought you'd see it, and here it was right in front of your eyes. I was the same way with Hogan and Rock. I, I couldn't believe uh, that the Toronto fans were cheering for Hulk Hogan over this guy. I mean, you know, and, and I'm I'm with you. Like, Hulk Hogan at that point was 
one of my least favorite wrestlers, if not my least favorite wrestler. I've kind of come come around on that. I, I liked him for the most part in the eighties. I, I you know I mentioned I thought they did the perfect finish. They put Hogan over clean. They didn't worry about doing a rematch. They didn't worry about okay, let's have Andre lose on a disqualification or anything like that. They just did what was right for that particular day. And guess what? Andre, when he came back for Survivor Series, him losing this match did not hurt him. Yeah, they even kind of retroed in a, oh, maybe he was cheated thing. Was definitely watched the footage. There was no way nope. that Hogan didn't kick out, but Bobby Heenan sold it. No, I agree. If you watch it, they, there was no like three count kicking out early. But you're right. They, you know, they did a good job of keeping that alive until Survivor Series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They 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 sold it, and you know they kept they kept it fresh with with Andre winning at Survivor Series, which is, goes back to what I was saying about WCW. This was a case where Hogan was willing to look vulnerable in that Survivor Series match, and that helped continue the feud to where they got to the big screw job with the twin referees. How much for the plastic surgery? I love that promo. Um, but, you know, and Andre got the belt and they were able to get it to Savage. And it was just a masterful piece of long-term booking that continued to keep Andre off TV. He's in Bundy's corner. He's coming out and he's being imposing. And it wasn't exposing him for the fact that he was just deteriorating by the month. Yeah, I mean, getting off a little bit off the WrestleMania three train, like I have said, you know, I've been saying for almost 30 years now that the WWF blew it with Lex Luger. They should have put the championship on him at SummerSlam 93 instead of, ooh, the money is in the chase. And, you know, just, you know, they screwed it up there. They didn't screw it up here. They gave the people what they wanted, which was a clean win. And I applaud them for it. Yeah, WWF is, at that point was never a money's in the chase kind of fed. It was always a, here's the champ, he's a superhero, you know, Backlund being a bit more of an everyman type, but otherwise generally a superhero is champ. And so that it made no sense to me why they didn't have Lex Luger win. And then they just kneecapped him even worse by having that god-awful celebration for not winning. I, oh, I yeah. never understand what Vince was doing with that. No, that that definitely was the wrong move. You know, I watched 21 years ago at WrestleMania 17. I watched it at a friend's house and we had a barbecue and they had this thing on. It was called WrestleMania All Day or something like that. I think it was WrestleMania. Mm -hmm. I All remember Day. that. Yeah. OK. And they talked about WrestleMania one and how great it was and what a success it was. And and then they're they're like, OK, well, how are we ever going to top this? And then they said WrestleMania 2 topped WrestleMania 1 because it was in three different cities, which I disagree with, but okay, whatever. Then they're like, well, how are we ever going to top WrestleMania 2? And they did it with WrestleMania 3, clearly. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, they had better not say they topped WrestleMania 3 with WrestleMania 4. And of course, Stephanie McMahon went out and did it. And, you know, nothing against Stephanie, but it's like, no, Stephanie nothing topped this. This was it. Yeah, it, it, it didn't. And as a matter of fact, WrestleMania four was kind of a bit of a flop. It was too long. So if the only thing it topped WrestleMania three with was by length, and then because it was at the Trump Plaza with 
a uh, casino crowd, the crowd just was not that hot for the show, and that that hurt it as well. Let me tell my audience, in a year, we will not be doing a WrestleMania 4 recap. I will not sit through that show again. That was horrendous. But, I mean, like I said, the, the whole the whole point was that this was last week. We talked about how it was the beginning of the Steve Austin era, the Attitude era. Two weeks ago, we talked about, you know, this being the end, WrestleMania uh, 8 being the end of the Hulk Hogan era. This was the peak of the Hulk Hogan era. It, did, it didn't get better before, and it certainly didn't get better afterward. Yeah, it was the peak of the Hulk Hogan era. I think it was the peak of WWF. I know WrestleMania Five had you know better buy rate, but I, I, I do think it was the absolute peak of WWF's um, appearance in pop culture, if you will, um, of being popular mainstream. I think. From here, it started to go down, and it certainly was my peak of fandom, not just with WWF, but at that point, I was watching anything wrestling on TV. I was watching UWF. I was watching you know, AWA. I was watching JCP. I was watching this god-awful thing called California Championship Wrestling. If it oh, was I've wrestling... Oh, i <laughs> Yeah. Um, if it was wrestling on TV, I was watching it. And this this was just the culmination of a period of time that I consider my 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 favorite, maybe of all time. That that summer of '86, the whole Orndorff Hogan stuff, just moving all the way through to the Savage Face turn in '87. That one year period for me, for both WWF and for JCP, for that matter, it just doesn't get any better. I, I agree with you. I mean, and what a spectacle it was. And it kind of had a, a Rose Bowl effect, if you will. And if, I'll explain what that is. The Rose Bowl is played every New Year's Day. And when it starts, it's, you know, a, a bright, sunny day in Southern California. And by the time the, the game is over, you have a nice sunset and it's dark out. Like I was I remember watching it going like, wow, it was like I should understand things like this. But it's like, wow, it, you know, it transformed from like a bright sunny day in Michigan and now it's it's dark out. I thought the, the effect was pretty cool. I don't know. No, no, I agree. I th- I thought it looked neat having it be so bright in the beginning and and darken, you know, just by the amount of time uh they said I I've heard a funny story though that supposedly Vince they said that the fans weren't going to be able to see properly if um it was too sunny out that day. So he said, well, it'll rain. It'll be overcast. And sure enough, I guess it was overcast outside enough to allow it to be bright. And then later, you know, darken as the night went on. I had not heard that before. I just assumed it was a sunny day, but I had no idea it was overcast. Let's talk about the post WrestleMania three effect on the wrestling business. Ted DiBiase did an interview where he said he took one look at the show. He called Bill Watts and said, Bill, I want out of my contract. This is where I want to be. And Bill Watts said to him, Ted, just hold steady. Give me a couple of weeks. And apparently Watts saw the show and he said, I'm getting out of business. I'm done. Yeah, there was no competing on it. I mean, you look at the the size of it, the spectacle, that many fans. The attention that it got in the mainstream media, even at that time, you had WWF running shows on Saturday nights periodically. 
replacing uh, Saturday Night Live reruns. I'm surprised Jim Crockett didn't see it and realize that he was not going to compete with it either because it was pretty obvious to me. Jim Crockett, <laughs> Jim Crockett Jr. saw WrestleMania, saw that it grossed like $17.5 million and said, this is what I'm going to get with Starcade. Maybe not $17.5 million, but boy, I'm going to get on pay-per-view and Starcade's going to get on pay-per-view and we're all going to get rich. And it turns out that WrestleMania 3 was the thing that killed JCP because JCP, you know, WrestleMania 3 was an incredible success on pay-per-view and Starcade planned for Thanksgiving and Vince puts his own show on Thanksgiving and tells the cable companies, hey, you have to choose. You can't have both. And you know what the cable companies chose. But remember, Vince is on screen telling us that he doesn't worry about the competition or try and hurt the competition. He worries about himself. <laughs> oh, yeah, he had and he had a clause in there that said that the, the cable companies couldn't have an event like two months before and two months after. So he basically he's trying to monopolize the cable industry and it didn't work, but it had a big negative impact on the NWA. Oh, yeah, it, it, it did. Starcade 87 should have been bigger. Should, of course, there were other factors named Ronnie Garvin that didn't help that. But it, it led to an escalation, too, because then you had the Royal Rumble being used to hit against uh, JCP. You had Clash of the Champions being used to hit back. And then at that point, as I understand it, apparently the cable companies got two of them together and said, knock it off. We're going to make money off of both of you. But, That's what happened. Uh, yeah, there was just a tit for tat going back and forth after that. And it was a war that Jim Crockett was never going to win doing that because one was a big fish and the other was a smaller fish and the cable companies were always going to choose the big fish. You know, I think to this day, I think that if JCP had played its cards right, they could have been a successful and profitable number two, but they they screwed themselves up and, and that wasn't going to last forever either. No, they overspent the private planes, trying to go into markets that didn't make sense. Um, just the overspending was was a big deal. I mean, it didn't matter how much re they were kind of like WCW actually <laughs> later on. It didn't matter how much revenue was coming in; the expenses were killing them. And then from there, the revenue started dwindling as the crowds started dwindling. So it was, but before the crowds really started dwindling, and they the business started a downturn for them. They still weren't making money because Crockett was spending so much. He was moving headquarters to Dallas for some unexplained reason. My understanding is that Jim Crockett didn't no longer wanted to be that promoter who had the little office in the industrial area in Charlotte. He wanted to be a big deal. And, and you know, he decided to do all that right when business was, was cratering on him. Let's talk a little bit more. Let's talk a little bit about the post-WWF uh, WrestleMania, Ken Patera comes back as a babyface, does the angle where Bobby Heenan, I guess, didn't pay enough attention to him when he was in prison. I thought that was an awful, awful angle. It was in, in every possible way. And the fact that they thought Patera would be the babyface in it was, was pretty crazy. Um, it's not like the 80s were known for not being a law and order time. I mean, law and order type, uh, that was that was a big appeal of Reagan and the Republicans winning some control in the 80s. 
so I don't think that 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 was that was selling beyond the fact that Patera was was shot physically. He wasn't any good anymore in the ring. It just didn't it didn't click. And and what's crazy about that whole thing is I was actually talking to some folks about Patera this past week. Is that he got off so easy for what he did. I mean, you if somebody else who was poor or not a celebrity or maybe a different color would have done he what he did to a cop, they, they might have got shot, much less got a whole lot longer sentence. So he's a lucky man when it comes to that. And I have also heard that Ken Patera was very much the provocateur uh, in that situation, that Saido, you know, really just got caught in a bad situation and what happened to him was sad. I mean, if, if Ken Patera had come out and said, look, you know, I, I've done my debt to society. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to try, try to do everything I can to make up for this. And Bobby Heenan started acting like a jerk towards Ken Patera. Like, that might have worked. But P- Patera came off as a big crybaby. I didn't get one letter in. And, like, you know, you're not that Heenan's not required to do that. Yeah. I mean, he's not making any money off you anymore. He's a manager. His business is managing wrestlers. So why is he going to be wasting his time? He's on the road 360 days out of the year. Um, It just made no sense from a logical standpoint. And then to top it off again, Patera just couldn't back it up in the ring. But it it got a... I've watched a lot of the primetimes right after WrestleMania 3, and it got an inordinate amount of time on primetime wrestling. They were really pushing it, and yeah, just... It was not something that was getting over. No, it was not something that, you know, he was getting sympathy for. Adrian Adonis makes one more appearance on television, uh, shows off his newly shaven head, and is quickly fired thereafter. Adrian had been on thin ice with the WWF for, you know, on and off for about a year. And I've talked about this on the show before. He gets fired for the dumbest reason ever. The WWF wanted their wrestlers to look presentable on commercial airlines, and Adonis refused to stop wearing sweatpants on airplanes. And they finally said, you know what, Adrian, enough, you're out of here. You just did the hair match, and you're not getting, you know, know, we're getting rid of you. That's it. And that was kind of the sad end to Adrian Adonis. You know, I know he worked some AWA. He was close to 400 pounds there. It was just sad to see what happened to Adonis. Yeah, I mean, in his defense, with as much as he weighed, sweatpants probably were a better look than trying to put on jeans oh. or something. But his look at what what he looked at at WrestleMania three was just there's there's struggling with your weight, and then there's being absolutely what's the word I'm looking for morbidly Negle- obese, neg- negligent of your yeah. profession, negligent of your profession. He has to look a certain way. He was never a spelt guy. He was never a a body guy, but he just let himself go to a place that just wasn't acceptable. And I don't blame anybody who told him it wasn't acceptable. No, I agree with you. I mean, it's just the reality that wrestling is a cosmetic business. Soon after this, I guess Vince McMahon went to the movies and saw what was the name of that that big movie in 86 that came out about the Australian guy. Uh, um, Crocodile Dundee. Thank you, sir. And now we have Outback Jack in the WWF, and they put a lot of TV time into this character that did not get over at all. 
Nope. And he ended up doing endless series of house show matches with Frenchie Martin. <laughs> so, yeah, and I've seen several of them on primetime because they kept showing them over and over again. They did. They invested a lot of TV time into a guy that just was not going to get rolling. Okay, we took some questions from the Stick to Wrestling universe on this. We're not going to be able to get to all of them because we are running a little bit late. Chris Tabar asked, what do you think the actual attendance was? You know, I I think it's more than Meltzer in them claim at 77,000. I think it's probably less than the 93,000. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Knowing the Silverdome a little bit um, with all the floor seats and how many you could fit in there for football, but then having to take away some for production, I think that's the safe answer is somewhere in the middle, 85-ish. Okay, I, I am going with whatever Meltzer said because he has it on good information. Plus, it's wrestling. Everything is exaggerated. The WWF claims that they drew 41,000 for Shea Stadium when they drew like 25,000 in 1980. I mean, it's just the way it goes. You know, wrestlers who weigh 220 pounds are billed as 263. Andre the Giant, seven foot five. I mean, there's nothing wrong with claiming it's 93,000, but I, I don't think it was. I think if it wasn't exactly what Meltzer says, it was a lot closer. Conor McGrath asks, do you think Paul Orndorff is the most notable guy ever to earn a DNP coach's decision? Brent, you know what that means for a <laughs> WrestleMania. Uh, you know, I saw that question ahead of time, and I think he may be um, for somebody, obviously, putting aside injuries. So, I, I mean, he was, by all accounts, the backup if Andre couldn't go, which was a tiny, 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 tiny chance. And, you know, Andre would have dragged himself out there unless he was literally physically not able to walk, but it it was a backup. They'd even done some shaky finishes on Saturday night's main event with the cage match where they both kind of landed at the same time um, just to, to keep the, the feud on the back burner a little bit. I, I can't think of anybody else who has, who has sat out of WrestleMania who's such a big star. I mean, this guy, was making money hand over fist with Hogan all summer and into the fall, a huge uh, money-making feud for the WWF at the time. And Orndorff even wrestled through an injury that hurt him for life just because he was making so much money. Yeah. Paul Orndorff was definitely conspicuous by his absence. I heard the same thing that he was the backup plan for Andre and that he got a WrestleMania payoff for not going there. Orndorff did, an interview, a, a quote-unquote shoot interview before he, he passed away, and he just blankly looked at the camera and said, I don't know anything about it, and I did not get a check, but who knows? Believe it or not, people, wrestlers do sometimes work in the shoot interviews. I'm going to guess that Arndorf was the backup plan, but that you know the, the story that he got a check for nothing probably isn't true. I'm going to believe him on that one. Tony Caro asked, do you think Billy Jack's blade job was an attempt at the time to move him beyond card status? Do you think Vince had some hope uh, for regaining Billy Jack's shot at national stardom? Uh, Brett, your thoughts? Maybe a little bit, only because in looking at the follow-up, he did get a couple tag matches with Hogan in versus Hercules and a partner. So there there seemed to be at least a 
a little bit of a rub where they're with Hogan trying to see if Haynes had anything further. I don't think it was a large push. I don't think it was, you know, where they're like, oh, okay, we're going to blade and we're going to push into the moon. I think it was just a, a small thing to add some spice to the feud, see if they got anything more to Haynes. They tried a couple of things. It still didn't work. And that was that. I think it was as simple as this, that, you know, this was Billy Jack's role. And if they gave him a bigger role, Billy Jack would, you know, sooner than later, he would hold them up. I don't think they were planning on doing anything with him. But Andrew, speaking of Billy Jack Haynes, Andrew Brugalski asked, was it just me or was the Billy Jack Haynes Hercules match stiff? Uh, and Billy Jack Haynes seems to have gotten a concussion. We see him puking for like half a second. I never put those two and two things together. But when you get a concussion, the first thing you do is you get sick, like, you know, throwing up. That's a possibility. I I don't know for a fact one way or the other, but, I mean, Andrew did a good job putting one and one together, Brent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that. I mean, every once in a while, somebody will puke just because they're, they uh, are tired. You know, they're, uh, they uh, don't have the energy. But for that amount of a match and the shape Haynes was, that's not going to be it. So, Good chance maybe it was a concussion. I've never really noticed, to be honest. Now I have to go back and watch it again. No, they had they got a couple of stiff shots in, in on each other. And I, like I said, it's, it's definitely a possibility. I remember, oh, God, this was like five years ago. I was interacting with uh, Bobby Fulton on Twitter. And I, he had a match in Boston against the Midnight Express. It was the fantastic against the Midnight. One of the best matches I've ever seen live. And Bobby got sick in the middle of the match. And I was just kind of like, you know. Bobby must have had some bad Chinese food or something before the match. And I wasn't even addressing him. And Bobby like jumped into the conversation and said, no, I just got kicked in the wrong place. And I got sick. So who knows? Yeah, it, it happens. I just never, I noticed the stiff part of the match. I just never noticed Billy Jack Haynes throwing up. I I had not noticed that spot. So I'm going to have to go back and see if I, I noticed that. I, I actually noticed it uh, when I was watching it on March 29th, 1987. I'm like, well, Billy Jean, I can't just puked all over himself. Edward Whipke asked, could Randy Savage have gotten a decent match out of superstar Billy Graham if the WWF went with its original plan before Graham got hurt? And a little background. My understanding is it was originally going to be superstar Billy Graham winning the Intercontinental Championship for Randy Savage, and then just Graham couldn't go. Uh, but to answer Edward's question, I think Randy Savage could have gotten a good match out of anyone in 1987. What do you think, Brent? Very much a, a flair, you know, broom-type factor here where he can yeah. even make uh, El Gigante uh, watchable. I think same thing with Savage. Graham, Graham was a smart enough worker to know his limitations at that point, and I think Savage would have done what Savage does best, which is uh, bump and run around at 300 miles per hour and do spots with pulling Elizabeth in front and all the stuff that made his matches entertaining. They they would have come up with something decent. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we've seen, I mean, we saw Randy Savage get a four-star match out of Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania, uh, WrestleMania 7 it was. So I think he could have done, he could have done something with Graham. Got two good matches out of Warrior. He got, that's uh, right. He got the retirement match, and then he had that match where they had the dumb angle about whose side Flair and Hennig were on that amounted to nothing because Warrior ended up leaving again. But, um, yeah, he got two good matches out of Warrior. Him and Rude were the only people that ever got good matches out of Warrior. 
Exactly. All right. Nicholas Kaladis asked, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, sir. How would you rate the Savage versus Steamboat compared to Flair versus Steamboat, both in terms of feuds and matches? What do you think, Brett? This goes to the heart of the difference between Jim Crockett and WWF in that they were both five-star matches, in my opinion, and just very different styles. WWF was all about characters, angles, and a much shorter match. And Savage and Steamboat did everything possible in those 13 minutes to make it spectacular. Flair and Steamboat matches, which in my opinion, all three of them in 89 that are the prominent TV matches are five stars. They worked a slower pace. They told a longer story, but they still put on absolute classics. And in general, even opening card matches were going to be longer than almost anything you saw on a WWF card at that point in the, the mid-80s. Yeah, and by the way, you uh, you kind of asked answered Steve Campbell's question, why did so many early WrestleManias have so many dud matches? Because it wasn't a work-based uh, work rate-based promotion, and a lot of the fans just came to see the ring entrances, and you see the stars, and once the match starts, you know, these people really didn't care. I thought Flair Steamboat in the ring, as Brett said, well, maybe he didn't say it. I thought it was a lot better in the ring than Savage Steamboat. And as great as Randy Savage was when he wanted to be, I mean, there's only one Ric Flair. Yeah, I mean, Flair, Flair is the, the best when it comes to getting a great match. I mean, there's nobody in the United States that has put on as many top quality matches is Ric Flair. That I think is indisputable. You can talk Shawn Michaels maybe a little bit, but Flair had the longevity and the variety of opponents that he did it with. So, you know, without going over in Japan, which I do not want to get into because I don't have the knowledge, I'd have to say Flair is the best ever in the ring. But I just, I like the difference that a 13-minute match can be so great versus a 37-minute match, and a couple of 60-minute matches. I think those were the times on the the three Steamboat Flare matches in 89. I, I just like the contrast in that, that somebody can do a shorter match that's really, really great and different than the slower-paced, more psychological match that uh, Flair and Steamboat were doing in 89. I mean, I, I've been told that Flair and Steamboat in the 70s were doing the kind of match that they, that uh, Savage and Steamboat were doing, except they were going at that pace for like 40, 45 minutes, you know, when they when both of them were much younger. But anyway, Rick Nathan asked a good question. Do you think Tom Zank really messed up his career by leaving shortly after this mania? Um, let me give you a little background. I mean, for Tom Zank had a good career. But what do you think? Do you think he really messed this up, uh, uh, Brett? Yeah, short answer, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any question to it. I mean, he had some some stuff in um, JCP and WCW that went okay for him, but he was mostly an opening card guy. He, in my opinion, was going to get a run with the tag belts. And in WWF, that meant big money, a lot more money than he was ever going to make, you know, curtain jerking for uh, Turner or for Crockett. So I, I think he messed up big time. You know, I... By leaving shortly after this, I think he absolutely messed up his career. And I, I've I've said this on the show before, but I'll I'll say it again. Supposedly, uh, the 
not supposedly, Zank and Martell were going around the horn against the Islanders uh, right after this mania. And what I heard in 1987 were the Islanders did not take a liking to Mr. Zank and were stiffing the shit out of him as many as nine times a week. Oh, and you don't want that from, from Tonga. No. <laughs> Haku will kill you. You don't want them from either of those guys. I mean, Tonga Kid was supposed to be crazy. But anyway, I mean, it's one. And there's nothing you can do. Like, what do you do? Hey, guys, cut it out. You certainly don't complain to management about it. So Tom, what I heard is Tom just decided he'd had enough. And it sounds like, you know, oh, what a baby. He's going home. Hey, you go get beat up by those guys, you know, again, every single night and twice on the weekend. Yeah, that's pretty rough. I mean, it's one thing to get stiffed by, you know, certain people in the ring. Like, you know, I got stiffed by Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart. Well, you know, whatever. But when you're talking about getting stiffed by those two, I mean, there's there, there's reputations. And these are a couple of guys that everybody talks about, Haku in particular. That's that's a whole level, new level of getting stiffed. Yeah. And again, it's not like, OK, you get through this one match. It's like, all right, see you tomorrow, Tom. But anyway, uh, let me see another good question. Kevin Dignam asks, was this the best pay-per-view that WWF put on in the 80s? Yeah, absolutely. Bar none. WrestleMania five was a one match show. WrestleMania four was way too long. I would say the second best pay-per-view was probably the original Survivor Series from 87. Um, had a really great um, tag team Survivor Series match. The main event, it was before they fell into some of the traps of Survivor Series that they would later fall in to make for silly finishes, counting out five guys at a time to protect people. So that was a that was a really good show, too. But WrestleMania three, you you had a five star match. You had the biggest match in history, and I still hold that it is to this day. So no, I don't I don't think there's anything better that WWF put on in the eighties. And just from my own personal standpoint, looking at the other companies, my own nostalgia makes it better than anything JCP did. Even if work rate wise, you could probably argue for the some of those shows. You know, you mentioned the 1987 Survivor Series. In terms of in-ring work, I do think the 87 Survivor Series was better than WrestleMania 3. No, you didn't get a five-star match, but you got a couple of four-star matches. But it's the difference between going to see a band perform at maybe not a club, but maybe like a thousand-seat arena. And seeing a really good concert at, you know, the, the the Pontiac Silverdome. I mean, it was the spectacle of WrestleMania three. Plus, in my opinion, there were not any really bad matches and there were some good matches. Again, they they kept it moving throughout. So, you know, d- using different criteria, you could either say WrestleMania three or Survivor Series. Finally, Jimmy Andrews has a question. I like this question. In the Ventura lawsuit, announcer's pay was divulged, and it was documented that Bobby Heenan was paid $50,000 for this event. With him being such a big part of the buildup and the success of this main event, would you say he was criminally underpaid for this event? What do you think, Brett? $50,000? It's not a bad, not a bad payday. But yeah, he, he really, he really carried it. I mean, he... 
he was the main foil for Hulk Hogan for almost his entire title run. Once once Hogan moved into Stud and Bundy and Orndorff and all that stuff, it was always Heenan involved. It was always Heenan carrying his side. And then, of course, with the Andre stuff, it was absolutely his side. While Andre was gone, Heenan was still carrying the storyline, talking about the machines, talking about you know the hearings that he went to. Oh, you know, you you'll hear something. But without knowing all of the paychecks for everybody that was involved, which I don't, I don't know if that information is out there and I just don't have it. I, I can't really say whether he's underpaid or not. That 50000 probably was more than almost anybody else on the card got other than, you know, like the, the Andres, the Hogans, the Pipers. Yeah, I, I'm with Brett. I really don't know how to answer that question. And, you know, what is everyone else being paid? So it's, it's hard to say. Um, I will say this, like WrestleMania three grossed over $17 million, but the WWF would be very quick to point out that a lot of that chunk went to the cable companies. It was close to a 50, 50 split. So right there, there goes about, you know, seven or 8 million of that $17 million gross. So it's hard to say, but I mean, Heenan, you know, 50 grand for one day of work is, is pretty darn good. And I'm sure that's not all he made. I'm sure he was well compensated throughout his run in the WWF. But yeah, I, I agree that Bobby Heenan, this Bobby Heenan had a lot to do with this going as well as it did. With Heenan, I, I really do think he, he was the glue that kept together the WWF for, for years. He took so many great bumps when he was capable of it. Um, he was the agitator all the time. And for that part, he probably should be paid more than almost any of the wrestlers because he was more important to the total package that was getting the fans to watch. Yeah, that that's actually an excellent point. And like I said, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough that, you know, it's Hogan versus Andre, but Bobby Heenan managing Andre after all of the stuff that went down between those two was just a huge part of the storyline. Brett, this has been a fantastic two-episode Stick to Wrestling, and I want to thank you for, for everything you've done with it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate it. All right, and yeah, we'll have you back soon, and uh, I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling, and I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum, and with that, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 